All right. I was reading a survey this week where they surveyed evangelical America, and they asked, uh, they asked the congregations in various places, what, what are the top books of the Bible that you'd like your, your pastor to preach out of? And then they asked the pastors, what books of the Bible do they prefer not to preach out of? And uh, you can probably guess, even just based on when people were checking things off back there on the list, the top two books were Genesis and Revelation. And uh, the pastor's top two books that they didn't want to preach out of were Genesis and Revelation. And uh, I just thought it was pretty funny. And uh, so we're, we're trekking along in Genesis at the beginning. Here's the win a Big B coffee question of the day. When we're all done, I'm going to ask you, but why did I put Wabbit season on this top slide? So as we go through it, think about your classic cartoon history and try to figure that out, why I put that there. So today we're going to talk about more general naughtiness of humanity, uh, the nations, and uh, Wabbit season. You'll figure out what that is. So today is our current Sunday school, the rest of the story. All right, so going in, oh, that table didn't come up right. That's all right. So just going through Genesis, we've already talked about how Genesis is laid out in kind of two sections. The Genesis scroll is one scroll. When we talk about Genesis, keep in mind that uh, when we insert like chapters and stuff, that's not actually in there. It's just one giant thing that goes. So this is one giant story. But there is people that believe that it looks like there's a nice shift between Genesis 11 and 12 as far as the writing style and such. Um, so Genesis 1 through 11, we're talking about world history. We're talking about human history. Um, and then once you get to Genesis 12, you're going to focus more on the, the Hebrew history and you get into the details of God's rescue plan. So 1 through 11 is covering what we need to be rescued from. And uh, 12 kicks off the story of what's in the rest of the Bible. And uh, Genesis 1 through Here we go. Ooh. Now the light's green, so it's been dying for a couple weeks now. All right. So yeah. So we've, we've just been going through Genesis 1 through 11. We kind of started at 4. We didn't get into the creation account because that's a whole thing and could take weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And we kind of started with uh, right after Cain and Abel. And so we're going to continue that today. We just got done with Noah in the flood. So... So looking at the problems that Genesis 1 through 11 are setting up again, these are the problems that humanity needs rescued from. These are the problems that Jesus delivers us from. And uh, we've talked about problem one in the past. We talked about sin. The biggest problem we had was sin and death. After the fall, the serpent creature, spiritual being came down and tempted and humanity went for it. And now we have sin and now we have death. Uh, the second problem we got into was the strange story of those, uh, the B'nai Elohim, those sons of God, those spiritual beings that came down and uh, propagated with the women of men. And you get the Nephilim, and you get the crazy violence, and you get the crazy depravity that happens, and you get Holy Spirit saying, I'm not going to deal with men any longer. I'm not, not going to contend with them. They've got 120 years. 
Humanity is wiped out after 120 years. Uh, Noah makes it out on the boat with his family, and we got through the Noah story. We took a couple weeks to dive into that, look at the details that they give us in Genesis of that. And uh, when we left Noah, here's a little bit of what I'm going through. Um, So we had the decreation event with the flood, and when we left Noah, the flood had subsided, and Noah and the family do their sacrifices to Yahweh coming off the boats. Everything is happy. The animals are, I like to think the animals are all frolicking around. They're all very content. The sacrifice goes up to God. I'm sure there's a nice rainbow in the air. Everything's extremely happy. God reinstates the Edenic orders, those same things he asked Adam and Eve to do. He, he states them again to Noah and he, the orders, and there's also that blessing over humanity. And so when we left, it was sunshine and rainbows and animals frolicking in the fields. And so we're going to immediately go to where the Bible goes after that scene. Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Okay, so they're going to stop right there. You got that quotations. They want you to keep in mind Ham as the father of Canaan. Because we're going to find out a little bit more. And this Canaan's going to have some sons that are going to plague us in the future. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Some people like to put populated there. Some people have scattered. And the word scattered is important, too, as we go on. Uh, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So already we've gone from God's promise and blessing to Noah farming getting some stuff going. This is all good. This is God's plan, right? You're farming, you're going out, you're cultivating the earth. But now Noah is drinking the wine and he became drunk. Then he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, they're bringing it back to you again. Keep in mind that Canaan guy. Saw the nakedness of his father and took his two brothers outside and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Shem and Japheth, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so this is strange. We can all agree that this is strange. And so Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and then told his brothers that were outside. Okay, let's look at this. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So this is strange because... We don't even know about Canaan yet, right? We just keep hearing Canaan being mentioned. Ham's the one that did it. We got some questions. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So let's just look at seeing the nakedness of your father and perhaps what that probably means. According to, we're going to look at that, look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew on it. Leviticus 18.6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. 
You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Leviticus 20, 11, If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Deuteronomy 27, 20, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say amen. So, uncovering his father's nakedness is not just seeing your dad lying nude and drunk. It's worse. It's very gross. And God is unhappy with this. And Noah is unhappy with this. And that's why Noah pronounces some curses. Does that make a little more sense? You kind of briefly go through that when you start. This is why pastors don't like to preach out of Genesis (laughs) right here. Um, When you're reading through your Bible and you get to this, because you always start in Genesis and you get to these things, and you're like, wow, he just saw his dad naked. Yeah, that's gross. But like, what's the big deal? Why Why is God so upset? Why is Noah so upset? Ladies and gentlemen, that's why. So, that happens right away. He curses Canaan. The speculation at the bottom is that some believe, and this is speculation, this is not in the Bible, but this also might be why Canaan is mentioned right away in Genesis 9, is that Canaan may be the offspring of that ancestral moment. So, that's why. Um, but that's not, that's not in the Bible. That's speculation based on Targums and different Jewish thought stuff. So, we don't know. Uh, I'm not too concerned about it. We can just skip by that. So, right away, humanity is back to doing what humanity does best, even though they just had everything destroyed. Uh, We're going to talk about Genesis 10. A lot of people feel that this is one of the most boring chapters in the Bible. It is called the Table of Nations, but the Table of Nations is important because the Table of Nations is laying out what is happening after Genesis 11. So here we go with Genesis again. They kind of do swirls, where they kind of do repeats, just like they did with the flood. That's the idea. But we need to go through Genesis 10, because there's some important stuff in Genesis 10 that's going to get us to the Tower of Babel story that people wanted to talk about. And the Tower of Babel story has a principal actor in it that is introduced here in Genesis 10. Um, So we're going to go through Genesis 10 kind of teach on it, just go through it. It's going to feel like geography. It's going to feel like history a little bit. There's some speculation and some fun with it. Um, but I think it's important before we dive into Genesis 11 next week. Um, the Tower of Babel is that third incident in Genesis 1 through 11, and it's a very important, and it's good to have the context as we go into it. So Genesis 10 starts off with lineage again, like a lot of books in the Bible that people like to ignore. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Donanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread their lands, each with their own language, by their clans, and in their nations. 
Have any of you guys ever heard the word Ashkenaz before? Yeah. Yeah, so that's where we're, that's where we're getting the idea of the Ashkenazi Jews that live up in Europe, the Germanic region. Uh, so they would say that they're tracing back to different things. Um, here's a map. It's a big map, but it's not enough because it's covering so much of the world. So those names that I just told you about, this is, this is speculation slash pseudo-history. We do have records of some of this stuff based on what regions were called. So when he's laying out these names of sons, I just want to point out that each with their own language by their clans and in their nations. So when he's using these names, it can be language names, it could be a cultural name. Um, but the green, the green words up there are where those sons spread out. So you have, these are the sons of Japheth. The sons of Japheth pretty much did the Mediterranean thing. They did the Mediterranean thing in the, the Eastern and Central Europe. So you get like they, you have the Ashkenaz going, that going up on top of the Black Sea. Uh, Tarsus is in Spain. And if, you'll re- if, if you ever, like you're reading Paul later on, Paul's mission was he wanted to get to Tarshish. Uh, not to be confused with Tarsus, which is where Paul was from, but Tarshish was where he wanted to end up, and that was Spain. Um, so that's how the, this is how the Hebrew people are looking at geography. This is how they're looking at the world throughout the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament. So when, when, they're, when they're starting these missions and they're sending people out in the New Testament, some of these people are specifically picking the nations represented from this table. The repercussions of this table and what's been taught to the Hebrews for thousands of years from this table, it, it affected the early church. So we'll keep going through Genesis 10 here. The sons of Ham, got to remember Ham is the naughty boy. Ham, the sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Danan. Now, some of us, if you've, if you've read a lot of the Old Testament, some of these names and places come up in our minds. We think about the Queen of Sheba. We think about different characters. Canaan, we know Egypt, Cush. All these places are still mentioned. Um, and so we're following Ham's line here. So, Cush fathered Nimrod. So here we go. We just got a listing of people. They're just listing names, regions, languages. And now they're switching. They're taking a, they're taking a broader... They're taking not such a broader stroke here, and they want to talk about an individual. Uh, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kelna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. A lot of people believe that the great city is referring to Nineveh. And of course, we have our dealings with Nineveh in the future. Some important things about Nimrod in this passage. Number one, it's the only one they really focus on out of all these lists of names. And the reason they're focusing on this is because, number one, what was the one city that he built the first city, Babel, that'll be the second city on earth. Cain built a city, but that city is now gone. 
um, Babel is the focus of the next chapter. And so we're kind of playing with that here. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Or, depending on how it's translated, he began to be a mighty man on the earth. Kind of means the same thing, but just some differences. The Hebrew word there is gibberim. The last time we saw gibberim was um, Genesis 6-4. And they were the Nephilim, when they talked about the Nephilim being the gibberim, the mighty men of renown. And so right away the author is getting you to track that there is something different about Nimrod and that he is one of these gibberim. Now, the speculation with that is that he is another product of that desire of unnatural flesh between a spiritual being and a human. Um, the Jews at the time believed that throughout the Second Temple. Um, we're going to kind of talk about that in a historic context here. I believe this is the intention of the author, and uh, the ancient Near Eastern culture and history will take us to that conclusion. Uh, they felt that he was a giant or a demigod. Uh, history does not mention Nimrod outside of the Bible, which is strange for someone that's supposed to be so consequential in the formation of basically what they just, his area was Mesopotamia, the birthplace of humanity. And um, they don't mention Nimrod by name, but it does, history does give us two individuals who actually fit this type pretty good. Uh, the first one is Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was the ruler of Uruk. Um, a couple things there. Pictures of Gilgamesh, what's left of stones. Those are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. Uh, and both of them have Gilgamesh being a large man. He's cusping a, he's got the lion like that, like it's a house cat. And he's got a, it's supposed to be a large snake in his hand because he can conquer the snake and the lion. Uh, Gilgamesh is known for one that hunts down beasts and monsters. He has some adventures. He's that mighty man. Uh, he is said to be two-thirds divine and one-third human. Uh, he rules cities brutally. And then after he lives his long life and he has started all of his cities, uh, he goes to the underworld where he is consulted historically afterwards. People would sometimes pray to Gilgamesh in the underworld. Uh, so he's got that underworld connection that the Hebrew people would not enjoy. Um, and he has a lot of dealings with some goddess named Ishtar. Ishtar sounds familiar. It's because that's where we get our word Easter. Um, Ishtar, or later on, Inanna. And he is depicted as a giant human in a lot of the pictures of Gilgamesh. Scholars, historians, archaeologists believe that they find lots of stuff for Gilgamesh. Of course, you can't say that Gilgamesh was a giant and they don't have that kind of stuff. So that's legend that's added on, or it may be true. But there are enough historical bases now. Gilgamesh is a real thing. The last 200 years has been great as far as archaeology for the ancient Near East and the stuff that they're finding. Really old stuff, interesting stuff that fits legends and myths that we thought um, so Gilgamesh is an option. He's still kind of a little bit fantastical. He's actually the first, he's the character of uh, Western, the Western civilization's first epic, which is the epic of Gilgamesh. Um, sometimes they have to read that in school because it's the beginning of Western 
like writing stories. Um, so that's Gilgamesh. The next guy that he can be identified with that kind of works is a man named Sargon. Sargon is found throughout lots of cuneiform tablets and stuff. Sargon, we're pretty sure, is a historical figure. We don't have any doubt on that. Uh, the legends that go with him, we don't know. Uh, there are some recent academics that believe that Nimrod is most likely talking about Sargon or Sargon's grandson. That's kind of where they tie that in. So Sargon is identified as the first person in recorded history to rule over an empire, which kind of matches exactly what Nimrod is set up to do in the Bible. Uh, his rise, history-wise, kind of traces the list of the city-states that's in Genesis 10. He is the son of a temple priestess and an unknown father. We talked about temple prostitutes before. Um, the idea, and we can talk about that. If you've got questions about that, we can talk about that later. His unknown father uh, just le leads to the speculation that he was semi-divine. Uh, he had to be hidden and floated down a river to be raised by a water drawer out of the river. So you got that Moses motif with him too. This idea of the, being sent down the basket in the river. Uh, and he spent the early times of his life just being a gardener. And then something happens and he just arises as a great hunter and as a brutal ruler. And again, he seems to be favored by this goddess Ishtar or Inanna. Uh, Ishtar and Inanna... If, you're, if you'd like to compare it to other goddesses with stuff that you may have, like mythology stuff, it's equivalent with like Aphrodite. Um, the Hebrews will talk about Astarte or Asherah poles, like in the Old Testament. That's where it's click, click, clicking in. Uh, and then his daughters, he was so devoted to the goddess that his daughters would go to serve Inanna in her temple. And again, he's depicted as a giant human. So the idea, the reason I take the time through this is a lot of people will look at Nimrod and a lot of people will criticize Genesis 10 and be like, history doesn't say anything about this guy. This is completely made up. I think that Nimrod, there's a good chance he was one of these individuals. I'm leaning more towards Sargon. The reason they call him Nimrod is because Nimrod actually means rebellion. It means he who rebels. And so they're setting up, if, if you're a Jewish reader reading this, he's setting up, his very name means rebellion. So you know what's coming. You know what this individual is doing. He's rebellion. He's rebellion in the face of God. As Genesis 10 says, he was in the face of Yahweh. So there is this idea that he is going to be this rebellious person. He's starting large cities. We were not told to live in cities. There's already this, we're going to do things my way. We're going to have a large empire. We're all going to be part of the same empire that's going against the Edenic organization that God set. God's like, spread out. Keep spreading. Cultivate the earth. Subdue the earth. And he's like, no, we're going to be one. We're going to be in this city. I'm going to build my empire. Um, outside sources like to say that he built the tower. Uh, the Bible alludes to that. The Tower of Babel is important. I like to think of the Tower of Babel. That's a city thing, though, too. We'll get into that next week. So continuing on with Genesis 10. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Perusim, Kaslahim, whom from whom the Philistines came. So right there, Kenyan, already Kenyan for the future in the Old Testament. And Kephtorim. 
Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, all the ites. That's from Canaan. And you're going to see all those names again as you go through Exodus and onwards. And then you take a little digression because they want to hit on this Canaanite thing again. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. And these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So looking at that, sons of Ham are your orange ones. So when you look at the map, a lot of your, the things that they were just going through with the sons of Ham, so that's where you get into your North Africa, down into Ethiopia. Um, you have Canaan there in, in current day Israel. And then you have some of your, um, your northern, right on the border there with the Mesopotamian area. But you have your, a lot of them settling in the, the eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Again, speculation as far as exactly where there are. I've seen other maps of this that have them all over the world, and they're pretty sure which sun became the Chinese people, which sun became the Indian people. I think that's a far stretch. I'm not sure that we can do that. Um, yeah. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkbashad, Lod, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gather, and Mash. Arkbashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelfeth, Hazarmabath, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Imabiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. All right, so much of that. I'm done with that. Okay, so they took a little detour here again, and you noticed, where they actually talk about this Eber guy. Um... Well, first, let's look at the map, and then we'll talk about Eber. So those are your purple names, and your purple names are going to settle in those areas. you got the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, and you got a little more of the Mesopotamia. So there we go. Eber is important, and the reason they're setting up Eber and Peleg is they're, they're trying to denote a couple things here. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So already, they're, they're already setting up the division that's going to happen in Genesis 11. Um, Eber is sometimes pronounced Heber. It's where we get the word Hebrews. So if you've ever wondered where we get the word Hebrews, it doesn't just mysteriously appear and somebody gives it. Um, actually, it derives from this guy named Eber. And notice the referencing to singling out Peleg. In his days, the earth were divided, so they're already trying to focus you. So they're, they're already focusing you by taking offshoots in this boring list of names. They want you to focus on Nimrod. They want you to focus on the earth being divided. Um, 
These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Seventy in total. Can anyone tell me where you're going to see a list of these nations again? Do you remember at all? You're going to see a lot of these nations right back in Acts 2. Acts 2 is the reunification of humanity. It's the opposite of Genesis 10 and 11. So that's one of the interesting things, is that Genesis 10 and 11 are about humanity being split, about the nations being given out and divided. And Acts 2, when they start listing off all the nations that these people were from that were attending the thing that happened in Pentecost, that's the restoration. And he gives the, he gives the believers in Acts 2 the gift of tongues to bring them all back together. So it's kind of the fun thing. It's like you have all these nations, all these things set up. They're, they're going to be split. We already know that they're going to be divided. We're going to talk about that division next week. But then Acts 2, when Holy Spirit comes, he provides the answer to Genesis 10 and 11. And so what we're going to see is that third issue next week. You had sin and depravity, or sin and death. You had that mixing of bloods that shouldn't have been mixed. And then you had the depravity and the destruction of man. And now you have the division of man, and there's a spiritual component that we're going to talk about next week. And what happens is Jesus takes care of all of that. Yahweh takes care of it all. And so what they're doing is they're setting you up right now so that you know what the problems are. And in the Western church, we've spent so much of our time just talking about sin and death that we ignore the spiritual implications of what's been going on and what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about the framework for the division of nations, why it happened, and what happened with those nations spiritually because of that. And when we understand that, then we can go to start understanding what Paul is talking about with principalities and powers and domains and different things like that. Paul's theology is coming from Genesis 1 through 11. What Paul is writing about is coming from that. So, the one thing I wanted to show you is 70 in total. A lot of people will criticize this and say, well, we know at the same time in history, there's other civilizations around the world. That may be. That may be. That's not an argument I'm going to take. What I do want to take is that this whole idea of the number 70 is a number of wholeness in the Bible. You get 70 often. And when they're talking about 70, it's a wholeness. It's sending out a whole unit. So like, for example, when Jesus sent out his believers to go out and do the things while he was still on earth, not yet when he had died, this was the first time he sent them out. He sent out 70. It's the number of wholeness. Um, that's how that works. So the Bible is communicating that all the, all the peoples of the world are coming from these people. I don't necessarily know if that includes everybody in every corner of the world as far as the list of names. Some people have done that. They've taken those names and they've adjusted it to how they think it fits all the areas of the world. I don't know if they're trying to tell you all the areas of the world, but I think it means the whole world. Does that make sense? I think they're focused on the geography of the Bible. And I think that they're setting that up. Yes, Don? Uh, I would say that it was probably based on the fact that it's going to come from Peleg and Eber, who we just talked about. So Abraham is going to come... Don's getting into spoilers here. 
Abraham's going to come from Eber and Peleg. So if he's mentioning Peleg, I would just say that he's mentioning it through Peleg. Because Peleg, I'm trying to think of Peleg as Abram's great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather. It's one of those that I have to go back and look. But we will get that. That happens. So I think he's included in the 70. Um, there, we are going to talk about God's retention of one. And uh, that's definitely coming next week. So again, just to sum up today, today's a little more on the boring side, but you got to get through it because there's some important stuff in it. Humanity fails once again. Okay, we see this whole repetition. They all seem to be clumped together before the Bible talking about them being divided. They're multiplying, but then they're building and dominating other people. They're starting their empires, conquest and rule. This was not what God intended. This is the part of the reason we got the flood in the first place was the violence and the domination. And uh, we get the rebellion, Nimrod is occurring. All right. Why is it wabbit season? Anybody up on their classic cartoons? Want to give it a shot? It's not bugs, but it's someone else. Why did I put wabbit season on the beginning slide. It is Elmer Fudd. Elmer Fudd is who? He's the great hunter. He's, so he's Nimrod. So what happens is throughout all of history, Nimrod, because he was a great hunter before the Lord, everybody always referred to great hunters as Nimrods. And then this cartoon comes out. And they sarcastically, Daffy Duck, because Elmer Fudd is so horrible at hunting, he never gets, he never gets bugs, he never gets a Daffy. Because he's so horrible, Daffy Duck sarcastically refers to him, my little Nimrod, talk just like, you're just not a good hunter. You're my great hunter, though. And uh, then people took that, and from then on, we have turned Nimrod, instead of meaning great hunter, Nimrod just means an idiot, Right? So that's what happened. That's the word Nimrod. And so in English, in Germanic, we've always just referred to the Nimrods were great hunters all the way through the late 1800s. And then we get into early, early cartoons, and now Nimrod means idiot. So when you hear somebody called a Nimrod or if somebody calls you a Nimrod, you can take it as a compliment and say you know what it really means. But yeah, so that's the, that's the coffee question of the day. Um, yeah. So I always thought that was fun because I didn't, you know, I didn't think about the fact that I knew as a kid, that's where I heard Nimrod, but I just didn't connect the hunter Nimrod thing. So, so I thought that was fun. And with that, we're going to pray. Oh, I got homework. So it's not a lot of homework. I need you to read Psalm 82 for next week. We'll be talking about the Tower of Babel. Psalm 82 is important. I need you to read the first part, I'd say the first 12 verses of Deuteronomy 32, which seem like strange portions for talking about the Tower of Babel, but it is important. So Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. And if you're feeling very reedy, go ahead and read Psalm 89. You don't have to. Psalm 82, Deuteronomy 32.
Let's pray. Lord, again, we just thank you for your faithfulness to humanity. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, as we we look upon our history, uh, the things that you've endured, the things that you put up with, and you still continue your plan. And Lord, we just thank you for that. And we thank you that you didn't cheat, that you had your, your way through all of history, and you partnered with us to do it. So Lord, again, we just praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your love. We praise you that your anger lasts a moment, but your love lasts forever. We thank you that you had your design. Lord, right now we thank you as we we start to finish up the three critical problems that happened to our earth. We thank you that in your awesome plan, Jesus took care of every single one of those problems. That we don't have to worry about any of those three problems anymore. That for thousands of years, humanity was bent over to those suffering, but we no longer have to suffer under that. Or that our future looks good. So we thank you, Lord. Yahweh, we love you. So Holy Spirit, just help us throughout this week. Help us to see things the way that you would see things. We love you, Lord. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.